You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Dare Shogunafaloo is the author of Caged Ocean Dub. It's a collection of short stories. Thank you for joining me, Dare. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. This is this will be my first time okay. speaking on the podcast. So. Well, this is an amazing collection of short stories. <clears throat> I was was just struck by the prose. There are, are there's a lot of really interesting things that are going on in this. Um, one of the things that I think is is most evident is, is the way that the uh, the perceptions of the characters color the stories in a really interesting way, because the characters live in a world where the supernatural beings and the gods are an accepted part of everyday life. So there's a, a, a layer of realism that comes with writing like this. And I'd like you to talk about, you know, using that and, you know, some of the gritty uh, realism to uh, combining the two to create uh, an, an atmosphere of shifting reality. Uh, okay. Thank you for that observation. Um, I think that comes from a place of um, living in a society or coming from a society or a world or a lineage where that which is known as supernatural to maybe other societies or other points of view are seen as realities. So the culture I come from, and I guess a lot of African cultures, have a have an understanding or a way of seeing the world that integrates that which is known as supernatural without sort of delineating it as something that is different. And I think it also stems from my own personal experiences and also from because a lot of our media, especially our cinema, so we have Nollywood, which is um, which is basically the Nigerian version of Hollywood. And though it's a bit different now, growing up, it was very much, you know, it had a lot of that essence that you're talking about. I mean, the effects were a bit gimmicky and 90s, but it had a lot of that element too of, you know, people being aware of like the supernatural gods, being spirits, and they sort of integrating into the story without it being treated as, you know, something that you have to be surprised at. So I think, and I consumed a lot of that as a child and also had my own personal experiences with, I guess, that um, that sort of point of view of being and seeing the world. And I think that's definitely infused into who I am and how I move through the world. And I guess it shows up in my writing. So there is a lot of semi-autobiographical essences, not elements, not directly, but there's that essence of like, you know, since I've had like encounters with what is considered other or supernatural or numinous in that sense, then it won't, it's not that hard. Or when I'm writing, I try to be honest or to sort of honor those experiences and, you know, bring that into the work as smoothly as possible. You know, one of the things that you use the word numinous, and I think that that's a really important um, indication of the kind of perspective you bring because it's not simply, you know, uh, a supernatural that is threatening or a supernatural that is some great beneficent power it is a power that is that exists within and as part of the fabric of everyday reality 
but it's kind of like a, what I would call a glow almost behind that everyday reality. So uh, I have to ask, can you talk about some of your own personal experiences with the numinous? Uh, okay. Um, um, so uh, I think well, the earlier ones, which aren't really numinous experiences, but were just about like those realities was, is the fact that, you know, I grew up with a patriarch who was very into ancestor worship. And, you know, he loved his Orisha, as they call it, or his patron god. So everyone in Yoruba culture has a patron god who sort of watches over them or who they sort of have deals with to watch over them and provide for them. So I grew up with someone who had that belief. He didn't, he didn't impose it on us, but he was vehemently like not too hot about Western religions or um sorry judeo the three the judeo christian aspect of being and you know how they sort of rapidly consumed nigerian society around the time i grew up so he was sort of this oasis and i think that meant that wasn't necessarily my entry point but i think seeing someone like that probably made it easier for me when i started having my experiences so my actual first experience i had was um so I was visiting an aunt on holiday and her husband passed while I was there. And he was, that. this is the earliest I remember, although there might be others that maybe my parents remember or the older people who were around me remember. But this was my first memory of something, you know, other intruding on what I consider to be ordinary reality. So I... um her husband passed and he was a Muslim. So he was buried immediately. Muslims are supposed to be buried before the sun sets. So he was buried immediately. And as a child, I didn't really understand what was happening because I wasn't even allowed to go to the burial. I think that's another thing. I don't think children are allowed things like that. So I really didn't have a full understanding of what was happening. I was about five here, between four, five, six. And so there was like, you know, a somber mood in the home. As a guest, I really didn't understand. And as a child, I was just looking for like to get away from that energy. So I sort of left where they had gathered after they had completed the rites. And I was going downstairs. The sun had set and it was nighttime. And I was going downstairs. He, I saw him coming up the stairs because he was a cleric. So he wasn't someone you saw very often, but I knew him. And so I saw him coming up the stairs. He had this glow about him. And I was so excited because, you know, usually he's not someone I usually saw, but he was a very, he had a very nice presence. And I always liked being around him as a child. And so he waved at me. And then I was so excited. And I ran back inside to tell the family that, oh, why are you guys, you know, what's all the sadness about? I just saw him, you know, on the stairs. And the reaction I remember was very, you know, it was a cauterizing thing. Like it was very, it wasn't outrightly violent, but it was violent in that it, you know, I was told to never ever, you know, talk about things like that or think about anything like that or believing in anything like that. And so I think I sort of smushed down that part of me. And it happened twice. The other one was much more in the horror story vein, but this one was quite, it, it felt refreshing. It was like a light moment. You know, it, it was a moment of joy for me. But then when I took the news back, it was then like, you know, received with such dread and, oh my God, what the hell are you talking about? Why would you say something like that? But I had actually seen him in his white. So he had waved and then just moved on. And so when I went back, the stairs it was no more there of course door going back to the stairs happened after you know I had been buried there and I had to sneak out to go and like confirm so that was like my very first one and I had buried that memory for so long it wasn't until I grew older and I started having like you know other I guess newer experiences or 
just that part of my life kept sort of trying to impress on me. And then I started remembering that, oh, I used to have these experiences. And, you know, this particular experience, I would never forget it. I can't even remember like the, um, the part about being buried. I just remember the lightness of the actual encounter more. So that was the first experience I had. The other one was also someone dying. We had requested as children to see her face. And then at night after she had been buried, I went into a dark room and I saw her standing in the corner and I screamed and you know, lost my head. But I had been drinking and I guess that was what I was told that I shouldn't have drunk, but that was what caused it. I had been, I had been, someone had been slipping me some beer. So they said that was what caused it. But this, the, the other one I told you about, the one of the Muslim cleric actually did happen. I still remember it very clearly. So I think those two deal with like, I guess the phenomenon of like the dead and ghosts, but then there are still other, you know, there are so many levels to, I guess the numinous or the supernatural or what is considered other. And I've had so many of them, but I can't really catalog them all. Well, I guess I'll just go with those two because they're like, they come from like a time when I was very like vulnerable and more open to those sorts of experiences. You know, one of the things that struck me about this book was that <clears throat> you use a lot of really interesting formal uh, kind of literary uh, canon kind of uh, styles. There's you, there are examples of you know really gritty realism. There are examples of that start out in kind of a realistic mode, but then you like slowly turn up the the surreal and supernatural aspects. Uh, these reading these stories is for me um, very similar to. Uh, a kind of a drug experience and I, I haven't taken many drugs because I find them very upsetting and I quickly go to a place where I don't exist and I just don't like it. That said, the kind of surreality that you create with your prose seems like it, it feels like that. And be, so I like you to talk about, um, you have referred to surrealism as an inspiration is this something you formally carried into your work that you said, okay, now it's, I'm going to write a work that's going to be surreal? Or is this something that just flows out of the story you want to tell? Um, I think both instances occur. So there's definitely like, I mean, there's definitely that being like how my mind works at base. You know, having a mind that sees the world in this way and, you know, having that pour out of like the work, you know, in the sense of like, you know, you're writing something and that just happens, you know, that's just the next thing that's supposed to happen. But of course, there's also, you know, growing older and discovering other writers and other modes of, you know, other genres and modes of creativity. And, you know, taking from that, so sort of calling and being inspired by other forms of the surreal outside of my mind. But I think the starting point is always within my mind and how I see the world. And generally that sliding effect that you talk about is also something that I think I might take from how my mind works and how like my reality could be sometimes, you know, everything seems basic and ordinary and then in the space of a day, you know, by the end of the day, I've experienced or felt or seen or heard so many things. And the experience that I started to deal with or the mode of consciousness I guess I started to deal with can't be, it's not the same as like where I am at the end of the day. And I find that very nourishing and fulfilling. So I think my mind and how it works and how I see the world definitely like the ground out of which all that springs but there's also the formal carrying which can happen when I'm feeling very when I really want to like put effort I think I think that happens with convergence in chorus architecture which is like one of the novellas 
the penultimate novella. So I think that's one of the mood, one of the times where I actually decided to use surrealism as a mood and as like an art, as as an inspiration that was more formal rather than like, so I storyboarded that and I kind of knew the sorts of images that I wanted to come into that. So it wasn't really, it was, I think it's more in the flash fictions where there's like, you know, it's just the thing that flows out and it happens. But the longer form, I have to think a bit more about the symbols and the images that are going to pop up. I want to talk about one of the stories that we encounter early in the book, Oasis. Uh, that That's a story that occurs simply, it, it's simply a story, of, in a sense, of gritty realism, but it's extremely terrifying. And I think you do a great job at just taking us further and further into a place of extreme discomfort. And so talk about creating that story and, and you know, just, it's a dire story. I, I wrote it for a friend, a friend, Tolu Olorotoba, who had a photography and story magazine called Chlorophyll. It was spelled with a K. And he was, he has these themed issues that he made. So I think this is about third issue. So he was asking for migrations. And he really stressed the fact that he liked my fantasy storytelling and like the surreal essences of like the work he had read when he was trying to get me to write it. But he had also spoken to me beforehand about poetry and all that. About like if I had ever written a poem and how like he likes how what I do sort of tends towards like the poetic. So when I was writing it, and he also gave me a very small word count. So when I was writing it, I just, I mean, I guess when I thought of migrations, I just found, and that was around a time when there was a lot of um, crisis in the north, in northern Nigeria. And there's like, there was an insurgent group. You probably, you've probably heard of them. If not, they're, they're called Boko Haram and they, we're sort of causing a lot of chaos and crisis and sort of um, displacing communities and people in northern Nigeria around the point that I wrote that. And I just imagined it like, what if someone had to be shifted out of like a sense of centeredness and comfort into like the desert? I, I can't say I know exactly where that idea came from, but I knew what the final scene would be. But like, and I knew what like, where it would start. It would be because of the crisis in the north that would sort of kick them out. Because I didn't have much information. I just knew that northern Nigeria was close to a desert, and so it would make sense for like a family to sort of move to the desert and sort of encounter and how they like adapt and change. And of course, there's the patriarch who is looking for something, but no one knows what he's looking for. Which sort of mirrors like parents, family relationships or father family relationships that I knew of then. You know, the father always has this thing that the rest don't know, but it's the thing that will save the family in that sense. I think I just put all that stuff in the blender and I, I then try to embody it, I think. So the sense of urgency, of course, I mean, dying of this, um, pregnant family members, herding sheep, I think all that just came more naturally. Though I don't want to use the word naturally, but I didn't really plot it. I just sort of sat down before I started typing. I was like, okay, these are the family members and this is where they are going and this is what will happen at the end. And then I just moved into it, so to speak. So that sense of urgency, of course, comes from maybe the word length because I wasn't allowed too much space. So I had to like, give it in a sort of, I had to like do some, do it in a sense of like snapshots really fast. And I also wanted it to be very poetic and very, um, to capture that sense of being lost or being, yeah, being unsure, that sense of uncertainty. I think that was what I was trying for. You, you know, one of the things that you've used the word poetic, uh, a few times here and I have to agree one of the things I definitely felt was like especially the flash fiction 
has a, the feel of prose poetry, and that runs through the whole book. So let me ask you two questions. One, you have these flash fictions, which really do feel like prose poems. They're like, in a sense, like, uh, take, take this red pill, <laughs> experience my wonderful hallucination, <laughs> and have fun. And also there are segments throughout the whole book. You know, all the book is written very poetically. So is your prose... Do you go back? Does it fall out of you off the top of your pen like that, or do you have to go back and fix it? Um, I think with the flash fictions, and also the flash fictions, I'll call them experiments because I find that when I try to, um, there's this thing George R. R. Martin. I don't know if it's George R. R. Martin who talks about the two types of writers: the gardeners and the builders. So they are those plot painstakingly and you know it's it's very much about lines and like you know lines drawn and such and then there are the gardeners who have ideas and who nurtured them by research and doing and I guess my flash fiction just fall into the third segment which is a bit of a mad science so I have the idea it's building within me and it just has to be the right time or I just have to have the find the right place and I just sit down and try to finish it in one sitting that's mostly the flash fictions but with short stories and longer stuff of course it's over a couple of days but the flash fictions are mostly written in one sitting so I just have the idea and I just toss it around in my noggin I guess and it falls off the pen in that in that way so it's a bit of trying to capture the rush of you know bringing that idea to life and what you said about the red pill and um, the red pill and taking a red pill, I guess that does align a bit because it's they, most of the stories in this book were written in an attempt to sort of escape or step aside from like, you know, constriction and a sense of reality that was becoming overbearing. So I guess senses of urgency and senses of like, you know, overpowering fantasy or, you know, hallucination could stem from like what happens when there's too much pressure on one side or when when I when I've gone through so much, maybe I've been going to school for a long period of time and I haven't been able to be creative. And you know, the, the idea is banging around in the back of my head. And then one day I just sit down in some corner, open up my laptop and you know, I type it out and it just comes out that way. You know, um, the story Eating Kowloon is just, it's devastating in, in a couple of ways. Um, it, to to see the, the woman character, the transformation she undergoes is just really powerful. But also, too, <clears throat> that's a powerful drug, that, that story, because as you're like really caught up in the kind of gritty action, all of a sudden the world starts changing right beneath your feet, literally. And I thought it was really wonderfully done. Could you talk? And it seemed like a story that was probably informed by some very specific uh, folklore or mythology. Even though when you're, that's something that only comes after reading because when you're reading, you're just going, oh my God. This is the most weirdest and wonderful place I've ever been. And it's rather terrifying at the same time. So talk a little bit. Is it informed by a specific mythology? And talk a bit to it. Because throughout this book, we see women characters. And particularly pregnant women who, who are become really powerful. Hmm. Okay, so Eating Kaolin is something that I was working on for an anthology. Um, it was an anthology about a moving circus, I think. Uh, um, it was supposed to be a dark fantasy anthology. But because of the constraints of living here, I couldn't get it together in time. And he had asked us to 
take from specific time periods. So he had given me the 1920s for Nigeria. I can't remember the person now. It was something I just vaguely wanted to do because I was trying to make some money really, but I couldn't meet up with the deadline. So he had given me the 1920s Nigeria. And so I had thought about what was happening in the 1920s Nigeria. And so when I went on, when I went to do the little Google research, I found out that the most prominent event in 1920s Nigeria was the Abba Women's War or the Abba Women's Rights from then. So I, as usual, I knew that I wouldn't. So I started thinking of it actually about how this woman, you know, starts her life and then falls into the circus. But, and she was supposed to, you know, have a bit of a circus energy, you know, something freaky i guess about her that would make her join the circus but when i fell out of the deadline i then decided to just go with the story of fusing that no i actually moved away completely from the circus idea and i just decided to write something that sort of tried to honor that event because it was an event in it was an aerial event in nigeria where the women were being the women in eastern Nigeria, Aba is a city in eastern Nigeria. I can't remember the exact state it's in. And they were being um, oppressed by the new... I, you've read the story by the... I can't remember the word. There was a word for them, the governors and their boys. So they were... They were yes, yes, they were getting taxed which was a new thing to them because it didn't go along with their culture. And they were getting frustrated because it also draws from Igbo culture, the little that I know of it. And in Igbo culture, well, or in most of the cultures that I knew pre-colonially, pre there seemed to be a, like the market space was usually left to women. So I think having those men come in there must have been like a bit of an upset for them. And so, they they just staged the revolution single-handedly and I don't there was a lot of violence and a lot of death I can't remember the exact outcome of it but it definitely was like the first breath of like you know an energy that would continue to like appear in like Nigerian history up to this point it's inspired so much so I the leopards are also like a thing from Igbo culture. So they had a leopard society of people who, you know, were said to have, were said to have spiritual ability and they're sort of like, they sort of kept their societies in shape or their tribes in shape. And I sort of just pulled many threads, the water spirits, the leopards, it's all, it's just very in your face symbolism. But I guess if you would only understand if you read it as a Nigerian, but if you read it from a culture outside, it would seem very different. But for me, I just pulled from like what I knew about Igbo culture that I had encountered in literature and also like in just colloquial discussion in like the way we see each other. And I blended that together with like the war and just try to give it that edge like oh imagine there was like an alternate version of it where what allowed where what inspired the upper women's war was like a sort of spirit intervention or an intervention from like the spirits of the land and that's where that came from and about women i guess because of how I grew up or where I grew up, because I grew up amongst a lot of women. And I think that's just something that happens, which is why I started talking about like childhood a lot. And so I think a lot of what shapes you as a storyteller isn't really much of what happens to you beyond what you experience and want when you're a child, maybe up to the point that you're a teenager and you become an adult. Or at least these for this first batch of stories that I've written anyway, I don't know what's going to happen next. So I think it just really comes, I guess those are the stories that I see a lot, you know, or that I want to see because there's a lot of, you know, the, there's a lot of the pulling down and the diminishment of the woman 
well, that I saw when I was growing up. I know there's, I know it's it's getting much different now, or like at least there is more voices and there is more of a motion towards sovereignty and like claiming of the self and like, you know, being empowered as who you are and not letting your gender determine that. But I think just, you can take this collection as like just things that I saw in the world and how I, and what I thought would happen if, you know, an element of the otherworldly or the surreal or the supernatural went into it and how that could like shift stakes and like shift ideas of power. You know, one thing I noticed too is that you've used the word patriarch twice in place of father. And when I think about the fathers in this book, they're absent, working, sending money. They're really not present in the story in the way that, that the mothers and the women are. And I'd like you to talk about, you know, the, this book really it, uh, works from a, a, a matriarchal perspective. And I think that's unusual. Is that just a matter of upbringing and where you live? Is that your personal perceptions uh, how does um matriarchy uh, how do matriarchy and patriarchy inform your storytelling style hmm. okay so oh that's very that's a very interesting question <laughs> it's it's a bit complex um i think i'll start from what i what I've seen in the world in terms of patriarchal modes of, um, you know, modes of being and the matriarchal, I guess I haven't really experienced either of them fully. So I've always had either distant or absent, you know, father figures. And I've also know also the mother figures that I've had haven't always been perfect or as hyper present in that sense so because they've always had to survive and like you know take care of the home so and also i've also noticed that there's generally a little violence in both modes so it's not like i'm trying to like come from a matriarchal point of view or trying to make it into a matriarchal thing i think that's just a felt sense of like my spirit and my body and how i am you know, inside me, because I guess that's where the stories come from, you know, to a part of myself that is intangible and that, you know, a thousand stories probably won't even be able to, like, explain or contain. And it has to do with, like, my understanding of what gender is and how that is not really a thing that you can define by actions and, you know, what someone does nor can you define it by like how the physical body is shaped. And I think it's it's mostly about, I think where I fall empathetically every time I try to write the story. I think so, I think I always go for that essence of like, you know, trying to nurture, trying to reclaim, trying to, comfort you know these sorts of stories that I told you that I had experienced in the world of women or of men trying to like find a sort of balance between them so because I identify as non-binary which is something I'm still working through and but I think I have to say it in the context of this question and how like it how I see gender because that's essentially what you just asked me and I don't know I, I don't think either mood is better than the other although we do know that the patriarchal mood left to its own vices leads us to you know some really extreme spaces and we don't know what the matriarchal mood is although we do know historically or anthropologically that there, there, there have been matriarchal societies in West Africa specifically. I don't know about much of Africa, and I mean they, they, they got by fine. But now that we are in like a 
post space, post dash as a sort of prefix, um, where we are like, where we, where, we were like, where we have so much information and we have experience and we've seen like the effects and the ways that, you know, certain, that adhering to certain moods or being a certain ideas of gender and how that like sort of affects how not only individuals live their lives, but how societies are unfolding and this, the ways that they, the values that they uphold. I guess I was subconsciously doing that because it took a while for me to sort of, to sort of accept that about myself or to sort of even call myself that or to, I don't want to say identify, to sort of come to that point within myself where I was aware that, okay, wait, both energies exist within me to, you know, degrees where they both have, where, where I'm unable to sort of say, oh, this is the energy that is the energy that I am. Do you understand what I mean by that? Absolutely. No, <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard it explained better. Uh, thank so you for in that sense, going into that. Yeah, so in that sense, it's more of like a sub interesting that probably happened because the spaces I was writing from as I said we're very um we're very tight very narrow very uncomfortable spaces I guess it's just a thing I mean whenever you're in a space like that I think your spirit especially in creativity always goes to what it feels is best for you or what it feels is most cathartic for you so I think that is what happened so I guess Perhaps we could say maybe where, where I am or where we are, if you think of the artist as, or the writer as someone who tries to open up space or build worlds where society or people can like try to see themselves. I guess that energy might be a bit necessary though, the energy of the, the, the matriarchal energy might be needed to bring the skills into balance. So I think that's all I have to say because it's quite a complex thing to think about. You know, I think that leads me directly to another uh, literary kind of question, which is that a number of the stories in this book are told in the second person. Uh, for example, Kikelomo Ultrasheen. You know, it, they're, they're addressing you and when you are born, your mother, Aduke, cries when she sees your full head of hair because it means you will be abundant. It, there are all, and there are more um, stories like this that are told in the second person, uh, October and Aaron Rio, Aaron Rio. So talk about this decision because it's an unusual person. Stories are very often told in the first person and you do that saying oh, I did this and I did that or in the third person he did this they did that etc um the decision to go into the second person I think is really interesting it it brings the reader makes the reader instantly a part of the story and that's an unusual storytelling decision why do you make that decision I think I'm trying to remember the first time I tried it. I know I tried it once with something. I purposely didn't publish that. It's something that I kept for myself. But the moment I tried it, because I had always, you know, done eyes and first person and third person and third person only signed. So I was, I guess, the place I was, because I had a blog and I was doing a lot of experimenting. And I guess that was just the next point I was going to go like oh point of view what is the second person point of view I've rarely ever heard of it you know maybe there's like one or two things that we are reading in it at that point though I know it's a bit more common now so when I started writing I discovered it was a way to offer empathy to the reader you know to to make them empathize with these stories in a way that you know in a way that they couldn't distance themselves from it. You know, they, they were, the moment you really, you, you immediately place yourself in the shoes of a character or in like the scenario. And I always found it interesting to work with because it also, 
because even as, as 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 the person who is writing it, it sort of blurs the line between the third and the first. So as the one who is writing it, I also have to do a double, a sort of double imagining. So I have to imagine myself as the writer being the you, and then the person who is going to read it being the you. So I find it a very, it's good for stories that are a bit mercurial and that shift. And I also, because I, at the point that I wrote Kekelema Ultra Shin, I got a review that accused my characters of being passive. That I'm, my characters will be too passive. And I found it very interesting that, you know, what they are taking from like having to empathize and be in those sorts of stories was to claim that the characters are passive and not really understand it as like them being a part of, or them being buoyed or pushed or pulled by like so many other forces that were in the stories. So I think you was definitely a very good way to like place people in those specific stories where there's a lot of you know motion and shifting. Because I noticed that the two that you mentioned, though I hadn't known before, are these sorts of odysseys for the characters where I think one of them follows her from childhood up to like young adulthood, and the other has like this odyssey of morality and like seeking herself. So I think. It's just a chord of empathy, if we call it that, for the reader. You know, you talked about your flash fictions earlier, and I thought they were very, very striking. I especially like, let me see, I have to look up the title of this story here. Uh, oh, yes. Uh, what Not to Do When Spelunking in, in an Ambro. It... <laughs> It's super extremely terrifying and really <laughs> surreal and weird as all get out. And, and, and yet, it's not off-putting in, in any way. It's like, you know, um, a, a spray version of LSD that only lasts for about <laughs> 35 seconds. You know, you just wow. <laughs> Oh my God! Exactly, it's supposed <laughs> to be a bit of a a quick shot of a psychedelic energy, basically. I think, I mean, it wasn't written from that point of view or or from that place. Do were you going to ask me a question about it so that hey. I don't interrupt you? No, go right ahead. Or you just want me to talk about it? Yeah. Okay, so um, <laughs> it was. I had been. I had been. It was definitely a reflection of my mental state. I think that's another thing. The, my stuff, experimental or formal, is always like where I am. And I guess an experiment always comes when you have an emotion that is so much of a Rubik's Cube and is so complicated. And you're like, how am I going to you know, get this feeling across? This feeling seems so much. I mean, and you know, you carry it around for a few days or whatever. and. You know, eventually, I guess, since you're not a painter or you're not a singer, you can't use those moods. So the symbols sort of pull themselves together. And so I had gotten into a sort of, I had been in a state of such anxiety. And I guess I had had a personal crisis about education. And I was a bit lost. And I had been in this space of such anxiety that I, it became almost eschatological. And I was like, what if, you know, what if that actually happens? What if the sky just rents itself open and you know you discover we are not alone? You know, how would that how would that affect, how would that feel, you know, mentally, I think. So I guess that's where idea, thought, and symbol sort of just cross together. But it felt very, it was quite upsetting to write. <laughs> But it was also like something for me that when I finished it, I was like, wow, this is actually something fresh, you know, that has come from my own mind and my own fingers. And that's where I started. Then I realized it could belong to the lineage of weird fiction. And every attempt I made to extend it, because there's like a version of it that's about 5,000 words long. I tried to do a year later. None of it really clicked. It was just 
that little piece of that story that just had to come out. You know, uh, one thing I find is interesting is you you choosing to tell stories in different modes, whether it's uh, the gritty realism of Oasis, the kind of sliding supernatural uh, realism uh, of uh, eating Kowloon, or you know the the kind of full on. Uh, weird slash uh, surreal uh, vision of, of, let me see here, chorus arc, uh, conversation and chorus architecture. Um, talk about choosing like genre, like, okay, this, this idea and this story needs to be told as science fiction. And this one needs to be told in a, you know, using some folklore. This one just can be told by using my own peculiar vision of reality which is so bizarre that people (laughs) will read it almost like some kind of supernatural horror story even though there's not not a thing about it that's supernatural so and i'm particularly interested in your decision to you know write science fiction is that something that you did later after writing the supernatural fiction um so about genre, I think I had always wanted to be an explorer of genre. I think it's something I will still do. So I used to, there's this, there's a website called TV Tropes that I got a bit into at some point earlier, just around the time I started my blog. So I had a blog and I had discovered TV Tropes. It was the first time on the internet, there were all these spaces moving around and so when I saw TV troops I was like wow I'm totally going to write you know a vampire story I'm going to write a story a fantasy story a ghost story a haunted house story I was trying to sort of cover all that but then when I started I realized it actually wasn't that easy to just say oh I'm going to do this and then do it and it would come out smoothly so I guess I had to learn to start bending to the needs of the stories. And I mean, sometimes it's character first, or most things. It's usually the character that's just standing there. And, you know, they're like, you wouldn't believe what I've seen, <laughs> that sort of thing. Or you wouldn't believe what's going to happen next. But you kind of have to, like, you know, follow me in this mode to find out. Maybe you have to come to my childhood, or you kind of have to just zip through a few minutes of this with me to understand. Well, I think I'm just interested in like the eclecticism of speculative fiction, which is the umbrella, because there's just such a wide variety and possibilities. And yeah, I mean, with October, I always wanted to write a story set in a buka, which is like a local restaurant where people eat food for cheaper than, you know, at a more classical restaurant. And you can find them like anywhere. But when I started writing it, it sort of morphed in away from like the local booker story and became something about like because there are levels to the booker thing. And so I sort of moved it to a sort of middle class booker thing. And it really wasn't like the original idea, but I just had to keep following it. And with convergence and with science fiction in general, which I love, but and which um Whenever I try to write it, I find that it it doesn't flow out of me as easily as like the fantasy and horror and surreal, weird moods. It's something that I kind of have to, I have to have a certain logic and I have to go to it with a degree of focus. But it's still, I mean, but whenever I do it, it then falls like um, the what not to do when spelunking story which is science fiction, but it's, I think it's more heavy on the weird elements than on the science fictional. Um, yeah, and so I, I met someone, Binyavanga Winina, who was like a sort of mentor figure to me. And he kept telling me, he had read all my stuff. And he was like, oh, this stuff is so doomy. And it's so, you know, it's so scriptural. I think that was the word he used. And it's like, you kind of have to attach this energy to some science fiction modes and see what happens. 
And so I think I kept that at the back of my head. And so convergence was like a, my decision to move into a fully science fiction. Thing. But even when I started that, it just became a bit, some other elements of other genres just had to sneak their way into it. Um, I think there is Biscuit and Milk, which is the last story in the, the utopian one. That was, okay. They requested for, you know, something that was, because it, the anthology was called Africa Reason. And so they requested for something that was a bit more positive or that sort of reflected that title, Africa Reason. And so I think that might be like my first fully science fictional foray. There was a time I tried a time travel thing, and then I tried a thing with um, psychic abilities, which I think is also a science fictional idea. But I don't know how successful those were. But I guess it's a genre that I'm very interested in. I don't know if I am as skilled as it as some of my contemporaries in like African speculative fiction, because there's a lot of really good African science fiction out. But it's something that I look forward to trying. And every time I do it, it's 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 a very interesting feeling to move into those moods that are sort of other but not other in the sense of the numinous or the supernatural, just other in the sense of like science, I guess, and the things that we logically think could happen. But like when they happen, it becomes like, it almost circles back to like an otherworldly place. So yeah, it's quite thrilling. As is every story in this collection, Dare Shagun Balowo is the author of Caged Ocean Double Collection of Stories available from Tartarus Press and from forthcoming as a paperback. Thank you for joining me, Dare. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.